welcome to another episode of our Molecular Cell Biology Podcast. A show in which we explore the inner functioning of our cells, the little structures that, when put together, form every tissue, every organ, and every system in our bodies. I am your host, Dr. Herman Rosacosta, Associate Professor at the Department of Biological Sciences at UTEP, the University of Texas at El Paso. In this episode, we will explore what is actually written in our genome, in those 46 molecules of double-stranded DNA that are carried in each of the trillion cells that, together, form our body. Question. Have you ever wondered what is written in your genome? What is actually contained within the 46 chromosomes that are present in the nucleus of each of the cells present in your body? Nowadays, we frequently hear in commercials or in social media the statement, it is written in our DNA, and the implication is that a given entity or person is a certain way because it is written in their DNA. That implies, among others, that the information written in our DNA determines to a great extent who we are, what we become, and how we behave. This deterministic view is not accurate, but it is not totally untrue either. But for us to start understanding to what extent the information stored in our genetic material truly dictates who we are, we must first understand what is actually written in our DNA. And before tackling that question, it might be a good idea to start with this one. How big is our genome? In other words, how many genetic instructions are written in our genome? And a related question, how many characters of the code of life are required to write the entire human genome? We had previously stated in episode 2 that building blocks of DNA are nucleotides, which are made of a phosphate group, a sugar, deoxyribose, and one of four bases, either guanine, G, adenine, A, thymine, T, or cytosine, C. So we can think of a DNA sequence as being represented by a succession of either of those one letters. For instance, the sequence GAATTCTGAC is a 10 nucleotide sequence. However, in our genome, the DNA is, for the most part, present as a double-stranded molecule, and therefore, for every one of those nucleotides you have in the complementary strand of the DNA, another complementary nucleotide. Therefore, when it comes down to DNA, we typically refer to its units in terms of base pairs, or BPs. So, how many base pairs form the entire human genome? Before answering, remember that our genome can be seen as a copy of two very similar sets of genes. One set that we inherited from our mother, and one that we inherited from our father. And each set is made of 23 chromosomes, which are linear molecules of double-stranded DNA. Again, chromosomes are linear molecules of double-stranded DNA. So, in total, we have 46 chromosomes. The set of chromosomes we inherit from only one of our parents is considered to be the haploid genome. Haplo is a prefix derived from the Greek word haplos, which means single. So, our haploid genome is 23 chromosomes. In contrast, our full genome is considered to be our diploid genome. Diplo is another prefix derived from a Greek word, and it means twofold or double. So, our diploid genome is 46 chromosomes. So, to write our haploid genome, we need 3.2 billion base pairs. That is 3.2 billion base pairs. And each of those bases can be one out of the four letters that form the alphabet of our DNA, either G, A, T, or C. And 
To write the human genome, the succession or sequence in which those characters are written will have to be very specific. This implies that our diploid genome will be 6.4 billion base pairs, twice the amount of our haploid genome. Okay, just to keep sense of these numbers, a billion is 8,000 millions. So 6.4 billion base pairs is 6,400 million base pairs. So, if we were to actually type the full sequence of the human genome in the form of a book, how big of a book would we be talking about? Well, the answer is that it would not fit in a single book. It would require the printing of several volumes. This was actually done by a group at the University of Leicester, which in 2012 printed the complete complement of the haploid human genome. The final printed series comprised 130 volumes, each containing about 536 printed pages, with each page containing 43,000 characters, either G, A, T, or C, printed using a font size of 4. Let's repeat this. The printed version of the haploid complement of the human genome took 130 books of 536 pages each, each page containing 43,000 characters. Or, in other words, it took 69,767 pages, almost 70,000 pages, each containing 43,000 characters to write down the haploid human genome. And with this, mind-boggling piece of trivia. Let's take our first break. Okay, before moving on, let's recap briefly. The haploid human genome is 3.2 billion base pairs. The diploid human genome is 6.4 billion base pairs. And that's a huge number of base pairs, so many that to write it and print it on paper, you will need to produce an encyclopedia of 130 volumes. An interesting fact related to this is that there are about 7.8 billion humans in the planet as of now, September 2020. So, if we wanted to write down the diploid complement of the human genome, we could assign to each person currently alive in this planet, one out of the four letters of the genomic alphabet, and we could line them up to write the totality of the human genome, and we would have about 1.4 billion people left, which would suffice to write down the genomic sequences of numerous human pathogens. Alright, so now that we have a sense of the number of characters that form the human genome, let's now go back to the original question. What is it that is written in our genome? Well, the obvious answer is genes. That's what is written in our genome, the genes that make us. But wait a second, that answer requires us to define what a gene is all about. So, what's a gene? A gene can be simply defined as a segment of DNA that is expressed to yield a functional product. In this definition, to be expressed could be taken as meaning to be transcribed, that is, to be used as a template to produce a molecule of RNA. So, a gene is a segment of DNA that is transcribed to produce a functional RNA. And there are numerous types of RNA that are present in human cells. For instance, there are the classical types of RNA, namely messenger RNA or mRNA, ribosomal RNAs or rRNAs, and transfer RNAs or tRNAs. And there are other types of RNA molecules that have been more recently identified, such as microRNAs or miRNAs, long non-coding RNAs or LNCRNAs, small nuclear RNAs or SNRNAs, 
small nucleolar RNA or SNORNAs and peewee interacting RNAs or PIRNAs. However, here our idea of a gene becomes dramatically more restrictive. While to the best of our knowledge, it is very possible that the vast majority of RNAs that are produced within the cell may have some functionality, when it comes down to cataloging the number of genes that we have, we typically think of genes as being limited to the set of protein-coding genes present in our genome. That is, we exclude in that definition the genes that code for all types of RNA other than messenger RNA, which is the one that is used to produce proteins in a process that we refer to as translation. Therefore, while there are many other types of genes that code for other different types of functional products, the number we typically refer to when we talk about the number of genes present in the human genome refers exclusively to the total number of protein-coding genes. A satisfactory justification for this practice is the fact that proteins constitute the end point of the flow of genetic information in the cell, its final outcome. Okay, so from that perspective, how many genes, that is, how many protein-coding genes, are there in the human genome? When the first draft of the full sequence of the euchromatic regions of the human genome was completed, that is, excluding the centromeric and telomeric regions of chromosomes, and this was back in the year 2000, and at a cost of about $3 billion, the expected number of protein-coding genes to be found in the human genome averaged around 40,000. That is, when the most renowned genomic scientists of the time were asked how many protein-coding genes would you expect to find in the human genome, the typical answer was somewhere around 40,000. However, the data in the initial draft supported the existence of only about 22,300 genes. Nowadays, after substantial refinement of the initial draft sequence and the analysis of a substantially larger number of genomic sequences, the current accepted tally falls around 20,000 protein-coding genes, even though there is still substantial disagreement on the precise final number with the accepted range being located between 19,000 and 22,000 protein-coding genes in the human genome. Okay, let's think about that number for a few seconds. There are approximately 20,000 protein-coding genes in the human genome. In other words, all you need to make a human being in terms of instructions to make proteins is to have around 20,000 of them. 20,000 different proteins is what it takes. No millions, not even hundreds of thousands. Just 20,000. That's enough. Okay, and with that in mind, it is time for another break. Oh, 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 so we have now established that our genome contains genes, and that even though a gene is any segment of DNA expressed to yield a functional product, when we think of the number of genes written in our genome, we typically think of protein-coding genes, and we have 20,000 of them. Now, the next important concept that is critical to understand what else is written in our genome is that most of our protein-coding genes are not encoded by a continuous sequence present in our DNA, but instead are encoded by segments of DNA sequences that can be located thousands of base pairs away from each other. And the reason for this is that the primary transcripts generated from those protein-coding genes are usually processed to eliminate a substantial fraction of the initially transcribed sequence, connecting segments of sequence that are fairly far away from each other. 
the process that eliminates those intervening sequences is known as splicing. The sequences that are eliminated from the primary transcript are known as introns, and the sequences that are retained in the final matured transcript are known as exons. The process of splicing is a rather complex one, and therefore I will try to explain it with some extra detail by using an analogy. Imagine that you are in a very repressive dictatorial country and you want to send a series of email messages to someone in another country, but you don't want anyone other than the intended recipient to be able to decode your messages. To achieve this goal, you have agreed to use a coding system using a four-letter alphabet that will be used to code for the 26 letters that exist in our alphabet. To code for all 26 letters, you will be using groups of three letters out of your four-letter alphabet. So every combination of three letters will code for one out of the 26 letters in our alphabet. With a four-letter alphabet read in groups of three, you could have a total of 64 different combinations. That is, four times four times four equals 64. So your code is redundant, as there will be more than one combination that will code for each of your letters. Furthermore, you agree that to make sure the messages are properly interpreted, three combinations will indicate end of message. Now, since you are interested in biology, the four letters you choose to use are, of course, G, A, T, and C. And the three combinations of three letters that you chose to signal end of message are TAG, TAA, and TGA. All other three-letter combinations code for one of the 26 letters in our alphabet. By the way, the five most frequently used letters in the alphabet will be coded by four different combinations of the three letters, whereas most of the others will be coded by only two combinations, and one letter in our alphabet will be coded by only one combination. To further prevent the ability of others to decode your message, you have also agreed a few additional rules. First, the actual length of the decoded messages, that is the message that will be written with the 26 letters of the alphabet, will be in average 480 letters. For reference, a tweet, that is, a message posted in Twitter, the social media platform, has a maximum length of 280 characters. So our messages will be 200 more characters, 480. Since the decoded message will be in average 480 letters, then the average length of the coding message will be three times that, or 1440 code letters, either G, A, T, or C. Okay, second, the coding message will be broken up into nine different sections separated from each other by random sequences averaging in length about 6,400 code letters. And finally, at the beginning and at the end of the message, there will be additional random letters, about 200 code letters at the beginning of the message and about a thousand extra code letters at the end, after the end of message three-letter code. With all of these rules in mind, then your coding messages will be about 54,000 code letters in total. Okay, let's repeat that number again. Your messages, coding only for a real translated message of 480 characters in length, will be 54,000 code letters in length. To be able to correctly decode the message hidden in that string of 54,000 characters, you must connect very precisely each coding segment with the next 
because if you add or take away any letter during the process of connecting them, you will alter the order in which the code is translated and will end up with the wrong translated message. And that's the first step needed to decode that message, connecting the segments that must be connected and eliminating the intervening sequences. Once all the intervening sequences are eliminated, the only things that will be retained will be 200 letters that precede the calling sequence, plus the 1440 calling letters, plus the 1000 extra code letters at the end of the message. Those final components retained before the decoding process starts, those are the exons. The fragments that were eliminated, the intervening sequences, those are the introns. And the process of eliminating those intervening sequences is what splicing is all about. Furthermore, the 200 letters that precede the calling sequence, that's the phi prime untranslated region, or phi prime UTR. And the 1000 extra letters at the end are the 3 prime untranslated region, or 3 prime UTR. And the process of decoding the information contained within the final mature message, what we will refer to as the mature messenger RNA, is known as translation. And its final product is a protein, which in our example will be the 480 letter message written in the 26 characters of the English language. But in the cell will be a 480 amino acid long product written with the 20 amino acids that naturally occur within the cell. And with this, it is time for another break. So the analogy we just provided closely represents the way proteins are encoded in protein coding genes in our genome. The main difference being that our full protein alphabet only contains 20 different letters, one per each naturally occurring amino acid. So there is a bit more redundancy in the real genetic code used to code for proteins. One striking feature of protein coding messages, as clearly exemplified in the analogy, is that most of the message, most of the 54,000 characters that form the primary message, what we will refer to as the primary transcript, are not part of the coding information, the one that ends up being used to decode the message, nor are present in the final mature messenger RNA. In fact, the coding component is less than 10% of the total length of the message. So most of the content present in protein coding genes corresponds to introns, sequences that are eliminated from the mature message. In fact, introns make up about 20% of the total sequences present in our genome. In contrast, protein coding sequences represent only about 1.2% of all sequences in our genome. It is important to note that although introns are sequences that are eliminated during splicing, introns are not pointless segments of RNA. On the contrary, Introns may contain important regulatory elements that help control the flow and usage of our genetic information. For instance, introns may contain transcriptional regulatory elements. Introns may also contain sequences calling for other types of functional RNAs, such as microRNAs and long non-calling RNAs. And some introns may even contain other protein coding genes, which in this case will be referred to as nested genes. Finally, introns can contain sequences critical in regulating splicing, and this is frequently the case. And this brings us to one additional important concept related to introns and splicing. The process of connecting exons together, that is splicing, is tightly regulated and can be altered 
to trigger the skipping of exons in a process known as alternative splicing, so that some messages produced may lack one or more exons. Alternative splicing can therefore produce mature messages calling for proteins lacking specific segments of sequence, and therefore those proteins will represent variations of the original protein encoded by the mature messenger RNA containing all the exons. Those altered protein products are known as protein isoforms, and the altered messenger RNAs that encode them are known as messenger RNA variants. One important rule related to alternative splicing is that even though skipping exons is allowed, altering the order of exons is not. So, if a transcript is made of five exons, say exons 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, alternative splicing can produce messenger RNAs containing exons 1, 2, 4, 5, and 1, 4, and 5, and 1, 3, and 5, but not messenger RNA products in which exon 4 is present before exons 2 or 3. One final idea related to splicing. The ability to generate slightly different proteins, that is, protein isoforms by alternative splicing, means that even though our genome only codes for 20,000 different proteins, in reality, the number of slightly different proteins that can be encoded in the human genome is substantially larger, as it has been estimated that 95% of all protein coding genes undergo alternative splicing. And for every protein coding gene, there are, in average, four different protein isoforms that are produced. So, alternative splicing is responsible for substantially diversifying the protein coding potential of the human genome. And with this, it is time for another break. So we have already spoken about the main thing we think of when we try to answer the question of what's written in our genome, and that is genes, or even better, protein coding genes. And we talk about how the sequences that actually code for the sequences that end up being translated into proteins are separated by known coding sequences that are eliminated from the mature transcripts, sequences known as introns, and how introns constitute about 20% of our genome. So, what else is written in our genome? Well, there are a lot of other things in our genome, but a substantial part of it is repetitive sequences. That is, sequences that are repeated numerous times, thousands if not millions of times in our genome. Repetitive sequences are very abundant in our genome and constitute about 55% of the total of our genomic sequences. Let me repeat this one more time, because it is very important. Repetitive sequences are very abundant in our genome and constitute about 55% of the total of our genomic sequences. There are three different types of repetitive sequences in our genome. Simple sequence repeats, retrotransposons, and DNA transposons. The first type of repetitive sequences are short sequences ranging in length between one and around a few thousand base pairs that are repeated in tandem arrays, one next to the other, in successions of up to a few thousands of times. Those sequences, also known as satellite DNA, are typically distributed in clusters, and they account for about 10% of our genome. Depending upon the length of the repetitive unit and the times in which it is repeated, satellite DNA 
can be further divided into three different groups. Microsatellites with a core repetitive unit of 1 to 10 base pairs, mini satellites with a repetitive core unit of 10 to a few hundred base pairs, and macrosatellites with a core repeat unit of hundreds up to several thousand base pairs in length. Microsatellites are easily characterized by a technology known as PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and therefore are extensively used nowadays as genetic markers. Retrotransposons and DNA transposons are both transposable sequence elements, that is, sequences that can move around in our genome. Retrotransposons are movable elements that get to move around through a process known as reverse transcription. The simplest way to think of this process is to think about the way information flows in our cells. For the information present in the DNA to produce a functional product, it must be transcribed into a molecule of RNA. That process, known as transcription, is typically performed over and over when a gene is activated to be transcribed. Therefore, active genes typically lead to the production of numerous copies of RNA transcripts. So, one gene present as one copy of DNA typically generates numerous copies of its transcript, RNA. In the final stage involved in the flow of genetic information, the RNA, specifically when it is messenger RNA, gets used as a template to produce a protein in a process known as translation. However, sometimes RNA molecules can be transcribed back into DNA sequences, and this process is known as reverse transcription, and depends on the presence of an enzyme known as a reverse transcriptase. The enzymatic activity of reverse transcriptase over a transcribed retrotransposon can then produce a molecule of DNA that could then be inserted back into a relatively random location within our genome. The insertion process requires other enzymatic activities not present in reverse transcriptase. There are three different types of retrotransposons in our genome. Signs, lines, and retrovirus-like elements. Signs, or short interspersed elements, are 100 to 300 base pairs long and contain sequences that co-opt reverse transcriptase to use them as templates for reverse transcription. They also contain the promoter region of tRNA sequences, so they are transcribed by RNA polymerase 3. It is important to note that there are three different types of RNA polymerases in eukaryotic cells. While this will be emphasized and explained extensively in a subsequent episode, it is important to state now that RNA polymerase 2 is the one in charge of making messenger RNAs, the ones that are used as templates for protein synthesis, whereas RNA polymerase 3 is the one that synthesizes tRNAs and the 5S ribosomal RNA. Okay, so going back to signs. Signs do not code for any functional protein, so they are fully dependent on lines to be translocated around the genome. This is because lines, or long interspersed elements, are substantially longer than signs, being up to around 6,000 base pairs in length, and contain within their sequence a promoter for RNA polymerase 2, and therefore the transcribed product acts as a messenger RNA and are subsequently translated. Importantly, one of the proteins encoded in lines is reverse transcriptase, the enzyme required to reverse transcribe retrotransposons back into DNA to allow their subsequent reinsertion back into random locations in the genome. 
The third type of retrotransposons, the retrovirus-like elements, are longer in length than signs and lines and are structurally similar to retroviruses, encoding for reverse transcriptase and integrases, enzymes that allow the integration of the reverse transcribed DNA back into the genome. However, retrovirus-like elements lack the genes for the structural proteins required to form infectious viruses and therefore can't multiply like real viruses. Out of the three different types of retrotransposons found in our genome, lines are by far the most abundant, accounting for about 21% of our genomic sequences. Signs are in second place, constituting about 13% of our genome. And retrovirus-like elements are the least abundant, contributing up to only about 8% of our genome. Thus, retrotransposons account as a group for up to 43% of the sequences that make our genome. The final type of repetitive sequences found in our genome corresponds to DNA transposons, which constitute about 3% of our genome. These sequences will be discussed in another future episode of our podcast. So, altogether, all repetitive sequences, that is, the sum of simple sequence repeats, plus retrotransposons, plus DNA transposons, make up to 55% of our genome. Let's state that remarkable fact once again to let it sit deep into our conscience. 55% of all sequences found in our genome are repetitive sequences. And with this in mind, it is time for another short break. So we have established that repetitive sequences are the most abundant type of sequences found in the human genome. Well, they constitute 55% of the genome, whereas introns correspond to about 20% of our genome, and protein coding sequences correspond to only about 1.2% of our genome. With those facts at hand, there are two obvious questions that come to mind. First, so what's the point of having so much repetitive DNA in our genome? In other words, does it even play a role? And if so, what is the role of that repetitive DNA? Second, so we have accounted for about 78% of our genome. So what else is written in our genome? What constitutes the 22% that is missing in this tally of sequences found in our genome? Okay, let's start with the first question. Repetitive sequences are abundant because their number is easily increased due to their intrinsic properties. For instance, simple repeats sometimes act as slippery sequences during DNA replication, producing slippage of the polymerase and resulting in the repeated coping of a region that had just been recently copied. That increases the number of repeats. Retrotransposons are transcribed numerous times, and upon reverse transcription, several of the newly produced copies can integrate into different locations of the genome. So that explains their number. But do they play an actual role? Although repetitive sequences used to be thought of as being junk DNA, it is now largely acknowledged that repetitive sequences likely play a very important evolutionary role. On one hand, integration of retrotransposons into random locations of the genome may either disrupt genes or provide additional regulatory functionalities to them. Furthermore, 
by providing sequences of substantial homology. They may promote the shuffling of regions of our genome with its potential effects on the regulation of gene expression. All right, so now let's address the second question, and that is, what else is written in our genome? Well, besides protein-coding genes, introns, and repetitive sequences, there are other type of sequence elements that contribute to about 24% of our genome. Those include segmental duplications, unique miscellaneous DNA sequences, and miscellaneous heterochromatin sequences. Segmental duplications constitute about 4% of our genome and are considered to be sequences that are the result of duplication events affecting limited regions that have occurred during our evolutionary history. Although in humans the proportion of our genome that corresponds to segmental duplications is low, in other organisms, particularly in plants, Large duplications involving, in some cases, the totality of the genome have been identified. This explains the large genomes of some of those organisms. Unique miscellaneous DNA sequences are unique sequences that do not correspond to any of the other DNA sequence categories and are spread out in our genome. These sequences constitute about 12% of our genome. Finally, miscellaneous heterochromatin sequences are non-repetitive sequence elements that are maintained as heterochromatin. These sequences constitute about 8% of our genome. So, in addition to protein-coding genes, our genome also contains introns, repetitive sequences, segmental duplications, unique miscellaneous DNA sequences, and miscellaneous heterochromatin sequences. And with this, let's take another break. So, to finish this episode, let's now briefly discuss another way to look at what is written in the DNA. And that is by considering what gets to be transcribed and what doesn't get to be transcribed ever or only at very low levels. This is an important way to look at our genome because one of the basic concepts that we defined earlier in this episode is what constitutes a gene? A gene is a segment of DNA that is expressed to yield a functional product, and being expressed is synonymous of being transcribed. That is, to be used as a template to produce a molecule of RNA. So, from that point of view, it is easy to think that any region in our genome that is not transcribed is not functional. And back in the 1980s, and even back in the 1990s, the view we had was that a substantial fraction, easily more than 50% of our genome, was never transcribed. One of the most amazing scientific developments that have taken place during the last two decades has been the rapid development of improved methods and technologies to sequence not only DNA, but also RNA. Such improvements, which were the result of collaborative efforts across numerous disciplines, have resulted in drastic decreases in the cost of sequencing analysis, accompanied by almost incredible increases in their speed, accuracy, and sensitivity. Nowadays, thanks to the cumulative data obtained as a consequence of those improvements in sequencing technologies, it is widely accepted that more than 80% of the human genome is transcribed to some degree, with some people suggesting that 
that fraction might be as high as 90%. The improvements in sequencing technology have allowed us to identify new types of RNA that have proven to play critical roles in the regulation of gene expression and gene organization and packaging, therefore vastly expanding the fraction of our genome that is considered to play functional roles. Additionally, we also characterized numerous DNA sequences as playing critical functions in regulating gene expression, not by being transcribed into functional products, but by serving as target sites for proteins that regulate transcription and DNA packaging. So regions of our genome that are not transcribed can still play important functional roles. The cost of sequencing human genomes has decreased so much that since 2018, Veritas, a private company with headquarters in Massachusetts, has been offering to determine the full genomic sequences of any interested customer for $1,000, while other companies, including 23andMe and Ancestry offer targeted genotyping analysis that provide a fairly comprehensive snapshot of their customer genome for less than $100. So the answer to the question of what's written in our genome, the one that nowadays we answer with a rough overview of the type of sequences present in our set of 46 chromosomes, is likely to take a very different answer in the not-so-distant future. A few years down the road, if we succeed in maintaining social order and global equilibrium, avoiding self-destruction due to climate change, it is very likely that a full genomic sequence will become the first analysis to be given to all newborns as a way to take a proactive approach toward ensuring a healthy and prolonged life. Still, many challenges and unanswered questions remain, including those related to the function of the many novel RNA products that had been recently identified. Meanwhile, it is my personal belief that the unspoken truth about genetic information is that the more we know about how it is written and regulated, the more incredible it seems that all the events involved in using that information may occur continuously and harmoniously in every cell present in our bodies, allowing us to be who we are, sense what we feel, experience the world around us, and question its essence, allowing us to explore how we function. to sum it all up. So, in this episode, we learned numerous facts and ideas. First, we learned that our full genome, that is, the full complement of genes that make the totality of our genetic information, is made of 46 chromosomes that are made of a total of 6.4 billion base pairs or 6,400 million base pairs. We also learned that out of those 6.4 billion base pairs of DNA, only about 1.2% correspond to protein coding sequences, and that there are about 20,000 different protein coding genes that are encoded in our genome. We also learned that the protein coding sequences contained within protein coding genes are not usually written in a continuous manner, but instead are separated by large sequences that are transcribed but are subsequently eliminated by a process known as splicing. Those spacing sequences that separate coding sequences are known as introns, and the sequences that are retained in mature messenger RNAs are known as exons, and introns represent about 20% of the human genome. 
We also discussed the idea that splicing can be tightly regulated and can result in different mature transcripts lacking specific exons. The process that produces such variant messenger RNAs is known as alternative splicing, and it introduces further variety in the total number of proteins encoded in the human genome. We also learned that our genome contains a large number of repetitive sequence elements that contribute to the evolution of our genome. And here are other important ideas that we discussed. First, we discuss how the substantial improvement in our understanding of what's written in our genome has been the result of the dramatic improvements in sequencing technologies that have taken place during the last two decades. Those improvements have led us to a new reality in which it is very likely that every individual will have access to their full genomic sequence in the not-so-distant future. This might bring unexpected new developments in what is now known as personalized healthcare. And finally, we introduced the idea that even though we have undergone substantial progress in understanding what is written in our genome, there are still numerous areas to be further understood and explored, including a full understanding of the role of many of the transcripts produced in the cell. And with this, we come to the conclusion of another episode of our Molecular Cell Biology podcast, a show in which we explore the inner functioning of our cells. Remember that knowledge has intrinsic value of its own, and therefore, it adds real value to your life. That's why our official mantra for this show is that knowledge is power. If you like this podcast, indicate so by liking it and subscribing to our podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, email me at grosasacosta at me.com. Once again, the email is grosasacosta at me.com and indicate podcast in your subject line. If you are curious and want to explore even more, visit my webpage. To do so, Google the Flu Sumo Guy. That should drag you to my webpage, where you will find the transcript to this podcast, along with numerous extra links and materials to help you learn more about yourselves and yourself. Thank you for listening to this show.